Hi there, welcome back to RD Audio, our podcast series put together by the researcher development team at the University of Cambridge. My name is Steve Joy and in this episode I interview Simon Hall about the importance of blogging for researchers. Now Simon was ideally placed to take us through this topic. He had a very successful career as a journalist and a broadcaster and in recent years he's been working very closely with the university supporting researchers and academics on communicating their research, their findings, the impact of what they're doing and he also writes novels, he runs his own business and he's a very successful blogger in his own right. And when I spoke to Simon, what we talked about was how blogging has become an increasingly vital tool for researchers to increase their online profile, to get their ideas out there, and also hopefully to engage in a less formalised kind of dialogue with the recipients of our research, but also perhaps with the people who are helping us to produce it in the first place. It's a way of finding different audiences. Now, clearly, the kind of blogging techniques that we're talking about here are not going to be appropriate for your PhD. This is not a podcast on how to get the dissertation written. It's specifically about a different mode of writing. But I think I would really want to emphasise that writing, like all skills, benefits from being exercised and it's very transferable so the way that we practice different kinds of communication different kinds of writing like blogging is always going to feed back into getting the dissertation written getting that next paper published or perhaps even particularly your next funding application writing a successful lay summary will benefit from the kind of storytelling that you will do as a blogger so I hope you find this valuable there's also an online video about photography and how you can use photographs successfully to enhance your blog and we'll post the link to that in the chat and of course if you've got ideas for future podcasts topics you want us to cover ideas that you want us to explore then we'd be really grateful to hear from you check out our website rdp.cam.ac.uk or drop us a line so Simon, thanks very much for joining me today to talk about blogs and how to write a compelling, successful blog. Um, I thought perhaps before we get into that, we should start off with the, the important why question. Why do you think researchers should consider writing their own blog? Well, there are many, many answers to that. Um, first of all, it's a great skill. I mean, brutally, it's in demand from employers. I teach blog writing um, several times a year and the courses are always full and there's always a waiting list. So there's obviously a sign there that employers see it as a very, very important shop window. Um, it's a shop window for yourself. I have got business from it. My blogs have um, got uh, inquiries to me about running courses and working with companies about some of the communications uh, projects I, I work on. Um, from a researcher's point of view, you could attract work, funding, partners, and um, improve your profile. Uh, there's a curious thing as well. I suppose it's a record of your career. Um, I have a daughter who's uh, 24 years old. She's an army officer. And uh, I think of it as a sort of electronic diary. So she can look back and see some of the things I've been doing and thinking and feeling. So there's that lovely personal element to it as well. And it's fulfilling. It's a sort of modern day equivalent of a diary, if you like. And uh, it's a great thing to learn. It's fulfilling to set it down and think about some of the things you've done. I think that reflective element, um, it's almost, it can be like journaling, though obviously with an audience in mind, I think can be hugely valuable given that research is a, um, a process of false starts and things not working and, uh, you know, investigations and new ideas. I, I absolutely agree. 
where in your from your point of view is the best place to begin when writing a blog do you think I always begin with um, the title uh, because titles are so important. They can encapsulate your story and tell you what you're writing about and importantly, what you're not writing about. So you, you stick to your subject. Um, and the thing with titles is they are going to be the first things that people see about your blog and online is a fantastically busy space. So you need to get attention quickly. You've got to draw in the attention. So I have a principle with titles. Um, I call it the three I's and three letter I's. Uh, they should be informative, interesting, and intriguing. So they should tell you a bit about what you're going to be talking about, but also, most importantly, they should lure you in. Um, and they're exactly the same as news headlines, which are, of course, really important in the news industry. They're the same as titles for books. They're the same as titles for academic research papers. You should follow those three principles, inform, interest, and intrigue. And I've got actually in front of me a few of my favorite um, titles. Um, and these are a mix of research papers, blogs, news headlines, and books. And, and do you mind if we play a little game, if I test you to see what you think these are, whether they're books, blogs, news headlines, or research papers? Oh, this feels anxiety provoking. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay, number one, dancing with your cat, book, blog, research paper, or academic study. Dancing with your cat. Yes, what's that one? It doesn't feel very much like an academic study. Okay, so we've eliminated one. That leaves blog, news headline, or title of book. I think I might go for a news headline. Oh, and you're one out. That's the title of a book. You uh, and I can sense you're immediately running out to go and get that one, aren't you? Well, I'm more of a dog person, sadly, for the author <laughs> of that book. <laughs> Well, let me try a few more with you. But you see, first of all, the point of that, it does tell you a bit about what it's about, which is dancing with your cat. It really is truly about that. But of course, it intrigues and allures. It makes you want to find out more. Um, try this one. Banky goes to Hollywood. Banky goes to Hollywood. So is that newspaper headline, research paper, blog or book? Ooh. Well, I, see, I want to say newspaper headline again, but I was wrong last time, so I don't know whether to st steer myself away. No, I'm going to I'm going to stick with my conviction. <laughs> You're right. That's a um, that's a newspaper headline. Banky goes to Hollywood. Play on the old. 80s pop group, of course. Do you mind if I do a couple more with you? Because you're used to asking questions, aren't you? And now I've turned the tables on you. Yes, I'm um, feeling very, <laughs> very on the wrong side of this, but carry on. How about this one? 12 weird tips to hit the top. What's that? Blog, research paper, book, or news headline? That sounds like a blog to me. Mm, absolutely right. And the 12 weird tips gives it away because you often see that as a format. And that's used because online is so busy and people like bite-sized bits of information. So that works. Um, okay, here's one. You'll definitely get this one. Do woodpeckers get headaches? <laughs> um, well, that, that feels like it's posed as a research question. So I might go academic paper for that one. Perfect. You are absolutely right. Um, and apparently the answer is no, but of course it takes about 80,000 words to get there. Um, and however many thousand pounds as well. <laughs> exactly so. Uh, final one. Okay, final one, as you don't mind playing along. This is an absolute favourite. Old MacDonald has a plan he eyes IOUs. <laughs> My words. <laughs> You've got to sing it along. Old MacDonald has a plan he eyes IOUs. It, that feels very long for a newspaper title. And I'd be slightly surprised if a book editor was okay with that. So uh, is that another blog? No, it's actually a news headline. It's a famous one from, I think, The Spectator, when um, John McDonald, the old Labour um, chancellor, shadow chancellor, 
was coming out with a plan for the future of the economy and was looking at IOUs. And that was lovely, caught my eye immediately. And that's one of the fun things. A lot of journalists like writing headlines because it's a time where you get to be creative and have some fun. So, so serious point, you've got to inform a bit about what it's about, but also intrigue and alert. Make me want to find out more. Call me into your story. Absolutely. Well, you've said the word story there, which does suggest uh, how are we going to move on then to um, once we've got the title, where, where do we go next? How do we start putting together a compelling story? Well, then you've got to go on to your opening line, which has got to then build on the title because, um, because you're competing for attention online. Once you've actually got someone to click on your blog with that beautiful art of titles, then you've got to draw me further with an opening line. And, and again, um, if you don't mind playing along, there are three points I want to make about this, and I'm going to illustrate it with some famous lines from literature. And I know as a great literary man yourself, Steve, you'll get these immediately. Oh, this is going to be shaming now, <laughs> now that you've said that. <laughs> so no pressure, but you'll get the first one, I'm sure. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Well, that one I do know because I taught that book many times. That's Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Absolutely. So three points from that opening line. First of all, when you read something like that, single man, possession of good fortune, want of a wife, you know immediately what kind of a story you're reading, doesn't it? It's not going to be a thriller. It's going to be a love story and a romance. So first point, you need to set out what your story is going to be straight away. Point number two. And I sometimes think about this as the dinner party question. You know, when you get the seating plan and you're set next to someone and you know within seconds whether it's going to be a really good evening or quite a long one. You know that feeling? Yes. You're too polite to say, aren't you? But yes. <laughs> but that, when you read someone who can write in that kind of way, as Jane Austen did with that wry observer's eye, that beautiful economy of expression, you know immediately she's worth spending time with, your precious, valuable time. And point number three, probably the most important, when you read an opening line like that, does it make you think, oh, God, I'm going to just chuck this book away now. It's not worth going on with. Or does it make you want to read on and find out more? And, of course, the latter. So those three points. First of all, set out your story. Secondly, give me a sense of you. You're worth spending precious time with. Point number three, make me want to read on. And I'll just to show you how that's repeated in a couple more famous opening lines. This is beautiful, an absolute favourite. Just six words. All children, except one, grow up. Now, what's that? What's that, Steve? Well, that feels like that might be Peter Pan. Oh, you're absolutely right. Two out of two so far. That is, again, <laughs> spot on. Well done. So, so that's Peter Pan. So again, in just six words, sets out the story, the boy who never grows up, gives you a sense of Barry, a wonderful writer with that great ability to express words and concepts so simply but so effectively, and makes you want to read on and find out. Okay, so this is the real pressure question. This is three out of three, hundred percent. Okay, you ready for this one? It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking thirteen. Oh, fluke! That's also a book I've taught. That's nineteen eighty-four by George Orwell. <laughs> and we should make clear at this point we did not collaborate on the questions here. No, we? we did not. No, this is just my my innate literary knowledge. <laughs> well, not so, innate actually. I had to study these things. <laughs> so I'm, 100% view on that. And again, same lessons from that. Uh, takes you straight into the heart of the story, gives you a sense of Orwell, masterful writer, and then makes you want to read on and find out more. And uh, just an example from a recent blog of mine, it started, this is my one single most important tip for nailing public speaking. So straight into the story, hopefully gives people a sense of me that I'm just going to get on with it and not mess around and make them want to find out more. And I think that's actually quite challenging sometimes for researchers who are used to 
writing a more sort of academic scientific writing there's a lot of scene setting at the beginning and um the idea of jumping straight a hook that jumps you straight into the story can feel a bit uncomfortable and perhaps that's why a blog which maybe is, is well is a less pressurized kind of mode of writing compared to peer-reviewed papers is a really great place to essentially experiment and hone those skills and being very direct yes absolutely and there's nothing wrong with putting a hook in at the very start and then saying but let's go back a stage and start to set the scene just so long as you've drawn the reader in because there's no point writing the most brilliant blog if you don't actually get the reader reading it, if they discard it from the start. So always make sure you lure them in from the start. Do you have a view on uh, starting with rhetorical questions, which is a, a favoured gimmick, I find? Who needs rhetorical questions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm fine with it. And it's something I often do as a presentation tip with um, businesses and um, executives and indeed researchers I work with. A question is a good way of starting because it forces people to think about it. It actually forces you to engage. So I wouldn't do it with everything, but I'd certainly not discount it as a useful technique. Absolutely. Um, okay, so we've got our um, title, which is informative and intriguing, and we've got our opening line, which tells us something about, you know, really what the story is going to be, why we're worth spending time with, and, and tantalizes in some way. What, what are the next important points we need to consider when we're writing our blog? This is something that always puzzles me, because we are all natural storytellers. You think you, you have a day at work or in the office or in the labs, um, the library, and you get home and you see your partner or you go out for a coffee or a drink with a friend and you tell stories. You say, oh, you wouldn't believe what happened today. And you talk about it and then you, you just tell the story. But somehow people seem to get worried by the thought they're formally now going to set out a story, whether it's a presentation or a blog. Don't. Just think. How would I tell this story if I was sitting with a couple of friends and we were having a glass of wine or we were having a, a chat over a coffee? Observe what's interesting from your own experiences and write and speak from the heart. Just follow the narrative you set out in the title and the opening line and just feel the story. Tell it. Don't get all formalized. Just tell it. Now, I'll give you an example from one of my blogs, which made a very big impression. That actually got me booked for some work. Um, my main charitable work is going around schools, state schools particularly, and trying to help young people aspire to better futures than they might otherwise have considered. And one of the things I talk about is um, having faith in yourself, because I think we all come to doubt ourselves sometimes, often known as the imposter syndrome. So I talked about this, this was an event actually in Cambridge at a lovely school called St. Bede's, and I talked about imposter syndrome, and there was about 100 young people in the audience, 16 or so years old, and I said, right, who here suffers imposter syndrome? And about half of them put up their hands. And then what was really, really interesting is one of the teachers next to me put up his hand. And then the headmaster put up his hand as well. And I put up my hand and all the teachers put up their hands and all the kids put up their hands as well. And that was such a touching moment. I hadn't planned that, but I wrote about it because I thought it was so powerful. And stories like that that actually make you go, wow, that's really interesting. I've learned something. I've seen something. I've felt something this week. Follow that feeling. If it makes an impact on you, it'll make an impact on your readers. And go and talk about it and talk about it from the heart. Don't make it formal. Make it the way it felt for you. There's two things in what you said there that really stood out to me as being, again, a, a way to think about blogs as exercising a different kind of writing muscle compared to our, our normal research paper kind of writing the first one is allowing the story to 
to flow in a way based on the, where your thoughts are taking you. And, and so famously, academic writing requires, um, after the fact, going back and imposing a kind of linearity and a logic on things. You know, we don't, we don't write a, a research paper that details all the ways in which the experiment went wrong. Um, we normally write it to, set, to explain the story about how we finally got it right. So we get trained, I think, to impose order on, on our story. So it seems really interesting to me that there's a chance to practice not doing that. And then the idea of actually just bringing emotion to the story. Again, most research writing is depersonalized, or not uh, certainly a great deal of it anyway, especially experimental uh, science. Is, it's depersonalized and, it's, and all the emotion is taken out of it so that it's just purely brutally kind of objective and the, um, the idea is then that it's replicable but I suppose there's something really interesting about giving people that space and that permission to explore stories follow their intuition and express how they feel about them yes absolutely and that I think that's one of the major differences between writing for a general audience and, and an academic audience is that you can actually cast off the shackles of the way you know you are supposed to do this as a profession and feel it and feeling is so important if there's one thing people relate to it's other people and their feelings their thoughts are there any other thoughts you wanted to share about how to make the story compelling well the two things that people really remember so imagine we've now got a great headline or a title and we've hooked people in with our opening line and we've set out the story in a, a lovely flowing and an emotional fashion. Um, don't forget the ending as well, because what you shouldn't do with a story is just tail off into a sort of nothingness and sort of say goodbye and sort of wave and sort of not quite sure how to end it. Endings should be memorable and emphatic. People tend to remember the start and the end, whether it's a presentation, whether it's a book, <clears throat> whether it's a blog. Um, so if you don't mind me subjecting you to a, another quiz, I'm gonna make this one harder because you did so well. Last <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to give you the first one, a really emphatic ending, um, and see if you can identify it. And I'll give you a clue. This one's from a very famous speech. Okay. This nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Well, it makes me think of America. Ah, right. Yes. Keep going. Um, is it? Uh, well, a, fa a famous speech. I, my mind is going to the Gettysburg Address, but perhaps and that's you not are right. right. Absolutely right. So that is the iconic Gettysburg Address, an absolutely magnificent piece of work, held up as an icon of rhetoric and oratory, power and passion and principles. But um, Lincoln didn't just tail off at the end. So thanks everyone for listening or reading or whatever it's like. Really set out your stall and really bang the message home at the end. And I'm going to change course now and do a, a, an enchanting one actually, um, which I think you'll get immediately from a book. And this is a beautiful end, and it's probably made me gulp and maybe sob a little bit as we go, so indulge me. I can't read this without having a little bit of a ooh. So they went off together, but wherever they go, and whatever happens to them on the way, in that enchanted place on the top of the forest, a little boy and his bear will always be playing. A little boy and his bear, that, that makes me think of Winnie the Pooh. And you are correct again. You are storming this, absolutely storming. But isn't that so beautiful? I mean, what an ending. And that, that, the reason that makes me well up is because that's the moment, of course, when Christopher Robin is leaving the land of childhood. And those toys, which up until now haven't been toys, they've been his friends. They've been talking to him. They've been going on adventures together. Now they're just toys strewn on the forest floor. He's leaving the land of childhood. Let's see, it's got me. It's got me again. <laughs> so serious point. Look for a really good ending as well. Memorable start, but a memorable ending too. Absolutely. So something poignant and, and 
heartfelt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just something that makes you stop and think or feel. My favourite ending of my books. I've I've written a few novels, as you undoubtedly know, because I can see from your bookshelf there that you've got various copies of first editions or signed behind you. Sorry, my mistake. Um, <laughs> but my favourite one was the fifth book I, I wrote, which is called The Balance of Guilt. And you never, ever find out what the title refers to until the last five lines when the lead character writes in his diary. He's looking for a title to talk about what's happened to him over the past couple of weeks. And in the end, he comes up with The Balance of Guilt. And it just stops. <laughs> And I, I presume by extension, it doesn't have to be something poignant. You know, we could end on something triumphant or happy or, you know, just something which resonates in some way. Yeah. And that's the great thing about words, the world of words, which I've had a privileged life working in. There are no rules. There are absolutely no rules. If it works, it works. And that's just beautiful. And sometimes you can come upon something which breaks all the rules, but it works. Then go with it. Follow your feeling. Absolutely. How long do you think a blog should be? You're saying there are no rules. Do you think there are guidelines, though, perhaps, about things like length? Yeah, that's an interesting one, um, because times have changed. And if you think about sites like Twitter, they're effectively a micro-blogging site about what people have been doing or what they're saying or thinking in just a few words. Um, but generally, you know, how long is a story? Um, you can tell a story in just a very, very few words. There was a very famous example that... Um, is quoted from uh, Ernest Hemingway when he was asked to tell a story in just six words. Is it possible? Can you do anything which would really work? And he came up with the very famous um, for sale, baby shoes never worn. <laughs> now, isn't that brilliant? Just yes, six that really words. Is. Yeah, for sale, baby shoes never worn. So it just gets the emotion working. It's a little story in just six words. Um, and of course, stories can go to the other extreme. There's a bit of dispute about how long the longest story is, but a lot of people think it's the blah story. And that's currently clocked up about 3.3 million words, 22 volumes so far, and still going. Um, I wouldn't recommend trying to write that. It'll take a long time. Um, but on average, kind of about 250 words minimum for your blog. Uh, but there is much more tolerance for on-screen reading now. It used to be said you didn't want to go much beyond four or 500 words. But I think because people have become used to reading from screens, you can go into quite long blogs now, and you'll often see quite in-detailed and in-depth blogs. So if you looked about 250 words minimum, but you can go into several thousands. A story is as long as the story is worth. Just tell the story in the way we've discussed, and you'd probably be about right. That's, it's, I guess, super interesting when you're talking about there are no rules, it's, yeah, you know, because obviously academic papers, there are always rules about length for these things. So again, something quite freeing about a different form of writing, a different way to express oneself. Yeah, and I think that's part of the appeal. If I was a researcher, and believe me, you, you lot are so far above my intellectual grade, it's, um, you're in the stratosphere. But I do understand how you have a set way of working. This is an opportunity for freedom to let some of you, your character, your personality, your view of life come out. And you can mix it with your research as well. You do your research because you believe in it, because it's something you want to explore, you're fascinated by, it could change the world this. Why not go out and talk about it? You see, for me, the academic part of that is great. I understand the importance of your academic work, but I'd really like to know the human story beside it as well. Why are you doing this? How do you feel about it? What difference are you going to make? That's a powerful story to tell alongside the academic work. 
I've always had a view as well that we we tend to make a mistake by talking in terms of the importance of our work and the impact of our work in similarly depersonalized ways. I think it can be, even as a thought experiment, it can be so powerful to say not why do I think this work is important, but very specifically, who do I think will use it? And can I tell a story about how I hope they will use it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the businesses I work with at the, um, at the judge, the business school, um, I particularly love them. They're called Happier Health because um, it was founded by a woman called Nicola. And um, it's an app which is designed to help young people, children deal with migraines. And I didn't realize, but many millions of children suffer with the chronic pain of migraine. Of course, it blights their childhood. Now, Nicola, if you met her now, you would never know this. She's smiley, she's happy, she's warm, she's upbeat. But the interesting part is, as a child, she suffered debilitating migraines and she felt absolutely removed from childhood from it. It completely blighted her childhood. And now, of course, she starts up this company because she wants to do something about it. And for me, that's the really interesting intersection. There's the research about how she's going to help people, how she's going to help children. But there's the human story. This is why. This is the driver. And those two make a compelling story for me. And of course, another way to get one story across is through the use of images. And I wonder what your thoughts are about including photographs in a blog. Obligatory, I would say. The internet is a very, very visual medium. And I would absolutely say get into the habit of taking photographs. First of all, they're a record of your career. Um, secondly, you will surely find at some point when you're doing a presentation or putting together a paper or even just writing a blog, you'll think, oh, if only I had taken that photo at that moment, Wow, that would have been amazing. That would go just perfectly here. It's so easy these days with smartphones. Just get into the habit of taking photos. If they don't come out, you just delete them and move on. But they're a fantastic record of your career. I mean, I, you know, I personally would have, would have loved to have been in the, um, in the Eagle um, when um, Crick and Watson go in there having just unwound DNA. And, and you know, they must have been having a pipe. Wow, if we had a mobile phone, they would like, take a moment to immortalize that. Absolutely fantastic. So yes, do get into the habit of it. Um, if you don't at the moment, try. And it's really, really easy. I mean, Steve, have you got your smartphone um, with you? I have, yeah. Pick it up and open up the camera. Um, and so it looks as though you... Then. Here we go. <laughs> That's where you've been going wrong all these years. <laughs> okay, I've got it, I've got it. So come out of the camera and go to your settings. Because there's something I want to show you which will help you take better photos. So are you in settings? Yeah. And go down to camera. Oh, here we go. Test number two. <laughs> I can feel the easy. clock ticking in the background. No, it's, it's fine. It takes a little bit of finding sometimes. Yes, I've got it. I've got it. Okay. So go into um, camera. And do you, do you see a button marked grid? Should be right at the top. Yes, I do. Tap it so it's on. Okay. So, so it's now on. Now go back to your camera and open up the camera as though you're going to take a photograph. Tell me what's happened. What's the photo look like now? Oh, the grid lines have appeared on the screen, dividing it into nine. Yes, and they are your guide to taking well-composed or pretty-looking photos. That's called the rule of thirds. There are two basic errors when you're taking photographs. The first one is composing it, i.e. how it looks. The second one is not filling the entire screen with your subject, i.e. the person or the plants or your project or your research. The rule of thirds, if you put the main features of the photograph on those grid lines, it will generally look like a pretty well-taken photograph. That is it. That is your slam dunk, super fast tutorial. But however, because I'm nice like that, um, I have recorded a little video for you, which is only 90 seconds, but it tells you about how to do photography on a smartphone. I call it visual storytelling, but if you pay me just another 50%, you're, you're welcome to it. How does that sound?
Oh, I, I think we can probably find a way to do that. Yeah. In fact, I've seen the video. It's, it's, it's really, really helpful. And we'll put the link to it. We'll put the video on YouTube and put the link in the notes underneath this recording. But I do, I do recommend getting into the habit because you'll enjoy it. Photography is great fun. Smartphone photography is really easy and it can be really, really useful to you. I feel like I'm going to have to overcome my general um, behavior, which is at the end of doing something, I normally write to whoever had their camera out and say, could you send me some of those photos? <laughs> Start taking them yourself. You'll be good at it. And I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs> there we go. That's action point to take away from this. Um, <laughs> thinking about the blog rather than my photography habits, um, uh, how do I build an audience for a blog? So, you know, I've done all these other steps. I've, I've got something which I think is really worth reading. How do I get people to notice it? Well, um, I wish there was a quick way, and people often ask, how do I get an immediate audience? Um, you don't, uh, unless you're a, a celebrity. Um, what you do is consistent and quality posting, and um, just post. Try and get into the habit of posting once a week or once a fortnight, and slowly you will grow an audience if you post consistent and quality uh, material. Stay on your subject. Decide what you're going to talk about. My blog, for example, on thetvdetective.com is about communications work, whether it's presentations, whether it's blogs, whether it's writing. Um, for example, Ian Fleming, you know, he didn't build an audience by writing about James Bond one year and then suddenly going off and doing romantic fiction. Decide what you want to write about, your subject. I do communications. You might do your area of research or life in Cambridge or, or whatever it is you want to do. Um, there's a lovely blog which we helped set up in, in Cambridge for the, um, for the humanities and social sciences, where their theme is all about life in the humanities and social sciences as a... Um, as a doctoral student at Cambridge. So find what you're going to write about and stick to it and do it consistently. And, um, and also don't forget the old concept of keywords. Um, I'm not going to go into keywords. It's just a search engine tool so that they pick up on the content that you're looking for if you do a search. But for example, if I want to uh, get found with a blog about public speaking, I want to use the word public speaking and fairly prominently, perhaps in headings or perhaps in the opening line, Hence my, I discovered a new public speaking trick this week um, from a recent blog or pitching for investment and customers, which I often do as well. I was talking to a group of entrepreneurs in Cambridge, startups mainly teaching them the art of pitching for investment. So look for the words which you are likely to be found by. Imagine someone was looking into Google and you wanted them to find your content. They'd be looking for something to do with research, maybe something to do with Cambridge, something to do with sciences, whether it's physics, whether it's social sciences or whatever and stay on your subject and get the important words in which will show up on Google. My, um, I'm going to be selfish now and tell a personal story. My experience with a blog from a few years ago was um, that I was, it was careers advice for early career academics and I used the keywords um, academic CVs and I used it on the blog and also used it on Twitter. And through Twitter, I got uh, some lucky retweets and uh, one of them was Nature Jobs. The other one was the Guardian Higher Education Network. And within two weeks, the readership of my blog had um, you know, increased tenfold. Mm -hmm. And it was basically through keywords and then being a bit um, trigger happy on Twitter, basically, and you know, inserting myself into some other hashtags. But I, I can attest that it does work. Then you've got to keep, as you say, posting quality pieces to hold on to that readership as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yes, it can work. It can work. And that's a great example. Thank you. Tell me about the style of writing that we should be thinking about when with a blog. How are we going to um, how are we going to assess whether it is quality? 
Yeah, this this is something which um when I work with with academics and researchers is something which is is probably one of the hardest things to get over. Um, you are taught to write in a certain way. It is your house style, if you like. It is what you do, and I completely understand that. However, um, modern writing styles have become heavily influenced by the web. And I, I can give you an example of what works best with, I suppose, two very famous writers of the past. Um, I'm not going to ask you to identify these because this is very tough. But this was Thomas Hardy, a classic Hardy paragraph. It is commonly said that no man was ever converted by argument, but there is a single one which will make any Laodicean in England, let him be once lovesick, wear prayer books, and become a zealous Episcopalian, the argument that his sweetheart could be seen from his pew. Now, of course, with Hardy, you have to read that paragraph two or three times, and if you're me, you have to look up some of the words, like Laodicean, i.e. someone who's not keen on the church, um, and to finally get to the understanding that he's saying that someone might not be keen on going to church, but they'll be happily going along if the person they fancy is there. Being Hardy, of course, he wouldn't put it in just those terms. Um, contrast that with Ernest Hemingway. I'm clear enough in the head, he thought, too clear. I'm as clear as the stars that are my brothers. So very crystal clear there, short, sharp sentences. Which of those two, Steve, do you think works the best for writing blogs and on the web? I'm going to suggest more Hemingway than Hardy. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, people have got very short attention spans. They want to know what they want to know. They want to find it out quick, sharp, and they don't want to be messing around. Um, so I understand the way you, you're trained to write in academic terms with far more clauses and arguments and caveats and points of discussion, etc., and shades of meaning. But you have to try and change gear out of that if you're going to write for the web and for blogs and just go to more short, sharp, simple concepts. And my, my bete noir, which I think really comes from the humanities and social sciences, is the sort of hedging of pairs and lists, you know, reconfiguring, renegotiating and redefining the um, societal, cultural and intercultural norms and attitudes and expectations of genders and sexualities. And, you know, and it's and for, for general audiences, you just need to pick a word, even though it might offend to some extent the very detailed in-depth understanding you have of why those concepts are different actually i think non-experts get lost in between the words rather than grappling with what you want to say yeah and sometimes it's used to obscure meeting and meaning isn't it rather than actually clarify what you're trying to say and again i think what we're talking about is using blogging as an opportunity to slightly reframe your thinking experiment with different forms different ways of communicating your passion and your understanding so why would you want to carry that kind of academic idiom over into your blog, that part of the fun will be deliberately trying to, I think, experiment with different ways of writing. Yeah. What are your thoughts about making the blog look attractive and appealing? Oh, well, that's a simple trick which you can use. Um, just try and think about how it's laid out. Look at some modern websites. Um, it used to be the days, uh, not so long ago, that they were blocks of text in an attempt to try and appeal to search engines and packed with keywords. Not so anymore. Search engines are more, more, um, more advanced than that. But also people are often looking on mobile phones and it has to download quickly. So websites these days tend to be bold, striking images and simple sentences, minimal text, lots of white space. So when you're putting a blog together, Think about short sentences, not long paragraphs, maybe two or three sentences max, lots of space between them. And don't forget about using headings or bullet points as well, anything that makes it elegant and attractive and appealing to look at. And of course, photos, as we just discussed, are a great part of that. Photos can really help a blogger look attractive and appealing. 
I guess um, one of the key questions that people might have then listening to all of this, thinking about choosing our title and uh, identifying the story, getting our photos together, writing, re refining the style, is really how long does it take to do this? How much time is one going to spend putting a good blog together? That's a really good question. Um, and of course, I know people are busy and you've got many calls on your time. Um, I tend to think of my idea for my weekly blog. I write one a week. I tend to think of it when I'm doing something like brushing my teeth or making a cup of tea. Think, what did I see this week? What did I feel? What did I do? What did I learn that will make a really good little narrative in my theme? Uh, and because I was a BBC News correspondent for 20 years and sometimes I had to write really, really quickly, it only takes me normally about half an hour to an hour to do a blog, and I do about four or 500 words, but I'm a hack, um, so it will take you longer to start with. But it's worth keeping going because I do believe it's a great skill to master. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and it's had many, many rewards for me, not just emotionally, but actually in terms of getting business in and partnerships and opportunities. Another th key thing to mention is you know, if you're going to write a blog, commit to trying it for a few weeks or a few months to build an audience and to feel good about it and start to learn. You'll be learning a new skill and that always takes a while. And the other thing is don't just write and publish. Writing is rewriting. That's a common saying in the writing and communications industry. And I can give you an example of that, how important it is. Um, I mean, we've already covered, it was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. The opening of Orwell's 1984, his masterpiece. But because we've still got the manuscripts, you can actually go back and look what his original opening line was and it's nothing like as powerful it was it was a cold day in April, early april and a million radios were striking 13 so completely different so even a master like orwell didn't get it right first time okay that's got echoes of what it became but only by going back polishing and editing and making it better did it become the iconic opening line that it is today so give it a chance commit to trying it keep working at it, learn the new skill and edit it as well so it's as good as it can possibly be. I, I do remember, I'm, I'm not sure whether you would agree with this, but a, a speaker who came to Cambridge a few years ago was talking about writing and, and he said essentially a similar point to yours that what made him a professional was his the, the time and attention he invested in rewriting so much as it was the actual writing up front. But he was saying that um, he considers that the rewriting editing phase should be at least as long as the first writing phase, if not longer. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. And there's an interesting example of that. I mean, I've written a few novels. Um, any guesses how many edits there are from first draft to, to publication? Oh, goodness. No, I, I, I'm not sure I'd even like to guess. A, a lot, I'm imagining. It is a lot. Yeah. It's normally six, seven, eight, depending on how well you've got on first time round. And that's 100,000 words, you know, similar length to a PhD. So it's a lot of rewriting as well as the initial writing. It goes back to that famous saying, writing is rewriting. But here's another interesting point. So that's 100,000 words of a novel. When I wrote news stories for the BBC, they were generally about one minute, 45, two minutes long probably contained about 130 words or so on average. How many rewrites do you think there were of that story before it got broadcast? I suppose, does that depend a little bit on the deadline that you were working towards? Sometimes, sometimes when the deadline was bearing fire in your face, there was no rewriting. But on an average day, it would be about six, seven or eight. It's about the same as a book. And only then do you feel it's good enough to go out. So yes, writing is rewriting. And again, I think uh, we're talking about the blog as, as a complement to the other kinds of writing that one does as a researcher. So editing is a, is a muscle you can train, isn't it? And, and you don't need to only edit your academic work in order to still be better as an editor. 
Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, it's practice makes perfect. It's the same old story. If you stuck a chunk of marble in front of me, I wouldn't suddenly make a beautiful statue. <laughs> Why should you expect to be brilliant at everything just to start off with? It's always about practice. Well, I'm uh, conscious that we are um, running out of time, given that we're talking about timing and time management here at the end. So are there any other final points you wanted to make about blogging that you think are relevant to our researchers? Well, just that I think it's worth giving it a try. I mean, I haven't come on to try and convince you to do it. All I've come on to do is talk about my experiences and what it's brought me and in terms of professional opportunities, but also personal fulfillment. It is all those, those areas. It does feel like it's a, a sort of diary of my life, a modern way of sort of capturing what I've done and where I've been. And when you get to my age, it's really good to have a memory and a reminder because otherwise you'll forget completely. I think it's great for my daughter, for Neve, so she can look through in future. So there's a human element. There's a professional element. It brings in opportunities. Um, and just one bizarre thing. I mean, you'll think I was making this up, um, but it's so strange I couldn't. Um, we're recording this now. Just this morning through my website, I got an email from a researcher at Deakin University in Australia. And she's looking at the impact of COVID, not in terms of fatalities, but disruption of everyday life. And during the, um, the first 10 weeks of the pandemic, I wrote a photo blog every week, taking photos from around Cambridge and talking about my experiences of what had happened. And she'd seen it. She'd looked online. She'd seen it. And she'd asked to talk to me about what I found and use some of my blog and photos. It's just an example how writing a blog can get you noticed on the other side of the world and you know, that's interesting for me, and I, I think it's great, and I'll happily contribute. But imagine as a researcher, you're suddenly appearing in Australia and America and all over the world with what you're writing about. Wow, that is so good for your prominence and your professional development and your potential career. So on many, many levels, I, I hope you at least consider giving it a try because I can thoroughly recommend it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I can think of many examples of researchers I've worked with over the last decade or more who've had... Uh, opportunities collaborations and um, even jobs uh, come out of um, their own blog writing so I, I wholeheartedly concur with what you've said this has been super super helpful thank you so much for walking us through these tips for how to put together a, an excellent compelling and um, rewarding blog and um, I look forward to speaking to you again thank you my pleasure thanks very much for listening we hope you found that RD audio recording useful if you would like to look at past recordings, you can find these on our website, www.rdp.cam.ac.uk forward slash RD audio, or you can find them on whichever platform you choose to get your podcasts from. I mentioned at the beginning, we'd be really glad to hear from you if you have suggestions for future episodes or feedback on the sessions we've already done. Please consider subscribing. And if you have a couple of minutes to spare, we'd be really grateful if you would leave a rating on your podcast platform. Thanks again. Bye.